0: I'm admittedly drawn to this play because of its reputation. When I was learning about Shakespeare, this was the play people warned me about, that it was somehow unfit of the rest of the Shakespearean canon, that it was an outlier, that it was indecorous, indecent. I I was drawn to the sense that there was something dangerous about this play, that it violated good taste. That was one of the reasons why I thought it was exciting to read and also exciting to watch. Also, Titus appealed to me because it was so popular across borders and across languages. There was something about this play in particular that even in a period before international audiences cared at all about the proper name Shakespeare, Titus Andronicus, or a version of it, whether in German or in Dutch or other languages. This was a play that spoke to people. My name is Russ Leo. I'm an associate professor in the English department at Princeton University.
1: Welcome to Shakespeare for All. Today we're speaking with Professor Leo about Titus Andronicus. Written around 1594, Titus is one of Shakespeare's earliest tragedies and one so shocking that some critics have questioned whether it was written by Shakespeare at all. It tells the story of a fictional Roman general, Titus Andronicus. Returning to Rome victorious after wars against the Goths, he provokes the anger of the captive Tamora, Queen of the Goths, when he slays her son as a sacrifice. But Tamora rises to power when she marries Saturninus, emperor of Rome. With the help of her sons and her lover Aaron the Moor, Tamora takes revenge against Titus and his family. They murder Titus’s son-in-law, frame Titus’s sons so that they are executed for the murder, and rape and mutilate Titus’s daughter, Lavinia. Tamora's Revenge incites Titus to take revenge of his own, revenge that culminates in a bloody, cannibalistic banquet. Rome represents a site of cultural strength and nobility in other plays by Shakespeare, and indeed in Shakespeare's culture. But nothing, not tradition, not religion, not law, not the treasures of Roman culture, can stem the cycles of violence that mark this play. If these features make Titus Andronicus exceptionally disturbing, they also make it eerily timely.
0: If I didn't know better, it feels like an artifact from the 21st century. It's a play where all institutions are in crisis. It's a play where recourse to authority is often uh, a risk. It's my favorite play to teach. Because I've seen students go from being like, I heard this isn't good, to being like, oh no, this is just the play, this just speaks to our moment. I mean, in some ways, that's terrifying, that this world feels intuitive. But in other ways, I feel like it's a testimony to the work this play does. There's no beauty in it, there's no idealism. Nobody leaves this play unscathed.
1: Titus Andronicus opens with a succession crisis, The Roman emperor has died, and his two sons, Saturninus and Bassianus, are contending for rule of Rome. Saturninus, the eldest, pleads for his right as first-born son, while Bassianus urges, Let desert in pure election shine. Then the tribune, Marcus Andronicus, one of Rome's political leaders, says the Roman people have chosen another candidate for emperor. Marcus's brother, Titus Andronicus. Titus is the play's protagonist, but unlike Shakespeare's other Roman protagonists, he is not a figure from history.
0: It's debated how historical precisely this Rome is. I take it here as a very vague historical setting. It seems to be late Roman in the sense that the Goths are at the door, these potential invaders. It is an imperial Rome, but these are not historical figures, strictly speaking, at all.
1: For 10 years, Titus has been fighting Rome's enemies, the barbarous Goths, and he has just returned victorious to Rome, along with his prisoners of war, Tamora, the Queen of the Goths, her three sons, and a dark-skinned man called Aaron the Moor the terms more and goth would have signalled in different ways an outsider status to Elizabethan audiences.
0: Goth is a little different. It's meant to refer to something that a reader would see as in tension with Rome, people that had pretensions of um, invading and even conquering Rome. My sense of more, and, and I'm referring here to a number of, of really compelling studies in recent years about Shakespeare, race, and colonialism, is that it's a very vague term. It doesn't name a particular region. It doesn't name a particular religious comportment. It really stands in for not white. More is a a term that I, I feel like Elizabethan audiences would have used in their own moment They are often referring to their contemporaries in many of the, frankly, racist and racialized terms that you see being used for Aaron and by Aaron in this play.
1: Titus's first act in Rome is to open his family tomb in order to bury his sons who died in battle. But the Andronici believe that these dead spirits cannot rest in peace without a human sacrifice. Titus selects Tamora's eldest son, Alarbus. Tamora pleads passionately for her son. Gracious conqueror, rue the tears I shed, and if thy sons were ever dear to thee, think my son to be as dear to me. But Titus refuses to spare her son, and Alarbus is slaughtered as a sacrifice. Titus's daughter Lavinia enters with Marcus, who asks Titus to stand for emperor and help to set a head on headless Rome. The play's imagery, as we see in this comment from Marcus, revolves around figurative and literal bodies. Titus refuses to stand for emperor, but asks the people if he may choose the next ruler, and he chooses Saturninus.
0: There's a dispute over succession. And it looks like it's going to be resolved by way of violence, unless they turn to Titus, who will speak on behalf of military power and name the successor. This is really key, I think, because make no mistake, Shakespeare sets this up perfectly. Force and violence shape legitimacy. Saturninus needs Titus at this moment.
1: In gratitude to Titus, Saturninus says he will marry Lavinia. Titus agrees, but Bassianus reminds him that he was betrothed to Lavinia and takes her away, aided by Titus's sons. Titus calls them traitors and tries to stop them, even killing his son Mucius, and orders them to give Lavinia to the emperor. But Saturninus replies, "'No, the emperor needs her not, nor her, nor thee, nor any of thy stock,' confederates all thus to dishonor me. He now addresses Titus as an enemy.
0: One of the things that often confuses first-time readers is like, what's the problem? Didn't Titus enable Saturninus to succeed? But the problem is that Saturninus recognizes this aspect of power. Even if he's a legitimate ruler, and I I would put scare quotes around legitimate, Saturninus recognizes, as does the audience, that in order to legitimately succeed, a victorious army needed to march into Rome and Titus had to resolve this impasse. And that always poses a problem. Like, you have to kill everybody and denigrate everybody who helped you get into power for fear that they can exercise that ability to control power against you in the future.
1: Instead of Lavinia, Saturninus says he will make lovely Tamora, queen of the Goths, his empress. Tamora asks Saturninus to pardon what happened and be friends with Titus. When he resists, she tells him privately that this forgiveness is just a pretense. I'll find a day to massacre them all, the cruel father and his traitorous sons to whom I sued for my dear son's life. Saturninus pardons the Andronici, and with this uneasy reconciliation, they all exit, all but Aaron the Moor. Aaron reflects on Tamora's elevation to power and how it affects him. Now climbeth Tamora Olympus's top, Aaron, arm thy heart and fit thy thoughts to mount aloft with thy imperial mistress. He is Tamora's lover and intends to raise his fortunes along with hers. Tamora's sons, Chiron and Demetrius, enter fighting. Both have conceived a sudden passion for Lavinia. Aaron says they will need to use stealth to satisfy their desire. The court is to go hunting the next day. Aaron tells the brothers to find some isolated place in the woods fitted for rape and villainy.
0: Aaron is in so many ways an obvious racist caricature. In many ways, He plays the part of a kind of stock villain. He risks being so excessive. There are many studies on the connections between Elizabethan London, various colonial projects. And and these really help us understand this really disturbing depiction of racial difference. And to try to situate Aaron and let us see this figure as a kind of index of... Elizabethan nation building, but emerging colonial projects.
1: During the hunt, Tamora finds Aaron in the forest and invites him to make love to her. But Aaron instead tells her of a plot he has in mind, and then he sees his intended victims approaching Bassianus and Lavinia. Aaron departs, and Bassianus and Lavinia mock Tamora for taking a moor as her lover. Your Barbarous moor doth make your honour of his body's hue, spotted, detested, and abominable, says Bassianus. Then Chiron and Demetrius arrive, sent by Aaron. Tamora tells them that Bassianus and Lavinia threatened her life. Her sons stab and kill Bassianus and announce their intention to rape Lavinia. Lavinia begs Tamora to kill her before they can assault her. But Tamora says... "'Remember, boys, I poured forth tears in vain to save your brother from the sacrifice, but fierce Andronicus would not relent. Therefore, use her as you will.'" They throw Bassianus's body into a pit and carry Lavinia away. Tamora's revenge against the Andronici is partly complete, but it sets in motion a further cycle of revenge.
0: There's something very exciting happening in the theater of this period. And we often call it revenge tragedy. And it's obviously about revenge. We need to ask like, why revenge? Why do they take recourse to revenge? And it's really because there are no abiding notions of law in this world to which these figures can take recourse. Revenge is the word that stands in for force or power.
1: We see the absence of reliable law in the next scene. Aaron, carrying out the next part of his plan, gets Titus's sons Martius and Quintus into the pit where Bassianus's body is lying. Aaron fetches Saturninus, who finds Titus's sons alongside the corpse. Thanks to some other false evidence planted by Tamora and Aaron, Saturninus believes that Titus's sons murdered his brother. The guilt is plain, he says, and orders Titus's sons to be executed without a trial. The stage directions then read, Enter Lavinia, her hands cut off and her tongue cut out and ravished. In performance, Lavinia is often limping and covered in blood. Marcus arrives and expresses his shock at the sight of Lavinia's mangled body in a long speech full of classical rhetorical devices and literary allusions. What stern, ungentle hands hath lopped and hewed and made thy body bare of her two branches those sweet ornaments? Marcus compares Lavinia to Philomel, a character in a well-known Latin myth from Ovid's Metamorphoses. Philomel was raped by Tyrius, who cut out her tongue so she could not reveal her attacker's identity. Seeing that Lavinia's tongue and hands have been cut off, Marcus says, "Fair Philomela, why she but lost her tongue! A crafty a Tyrius cousin hast thou met."
0: Shakespeare, by using quotes and allusions from classical texts, really dissolves hard distinctions between art and life. You get a sense that these works matter to the characters. These are quotations that testify to some shared experience that traverses and life.
1: Meanwhile, Titus is grieving for his other children, for Quintus and Martius, who are about to be executed, and for Lucius, who attempted to save his brothers and has been banished from Rome. Then Marcus enters with Lavinia. My grief was at the height before thou came'st, says Titus, and now, like the Nile, it disdaineth bounds. Aaron enters to say that the Emperor has offered a deal. If one of them will cut off his hand as ransom, then Saturninus will free Titus's two sons.
0: This is a world in which an alleged decree, a believable decree, comes down from Saturninus. That is, if you want to redeem your sons, send us your hand. That's not a vision of law that's that far removed from an act of revenge. And so it's, that I think is what makes a play like Titus so um, crucial and exciting. It's not just that it hinges on revenge, it's that it blurs the distinction between an act of revenge and a demand made according to the letter of the law.
1: Aaron cuts off the hand Titus offers and then says in an aside, let fools do good and fair men call for grace. Aaron will have his soul black like his face. He exits with the hand and then, less than 30 lines later, a messenger enters carrying Titus's hand and the heads of his two sons. Until now, Titus has been speaking in the passionate but rather formal language of conventional classical revenge tragedy. Marcus is still speaking in this style. Now let hot Etna cool in Sicily, be my heart an ever-burning hell. But Titus's response is different. He laughs. Why dost thou laugh? asks Marcus. I have not another tear to shed, says Titus. This moment, the lowest extremity of his grief marks a turning point. This is the first time he mentions revenge. He tells Lucius to leave Rome and raise an army among the Goths. Another Latin allusion helps Titus find out what happened to Lavinia. She finds a copy of Ovid's Metamorphoses and opens it to the tale of Philomel. Lavinia, wert thou ravished and wronged as Philomela was? Titus asks. Guiding a staff between her stumps, Lavinia scratches the names of her attackers in the ground. Chiron, Demetrius. Now Titus knows on whom to take revenge. At court, a nurse comes to Chiron, Demetrius and Aaron with an infant that she calls a joyless, dismal, black and sorrowful issue. Tamora has given birth and the baby is black, indicating that Aaron, not Saturninus, is the father. To avoid Saturninus's anger, Tamora has ordered Aaron to kill the baby, but he will not. Is black so base a hue, he says. He dies that touches this my firstborn son and heir. This before all the world do I prefer, this morga all the world will I keep safe. Aaron kills the nurse to keep Tamora's secret safe and leaves Rome with the baby.
0: Aaron is a a kind of stock stage villain in a way, but he's also in some senses the most sympathetic character. He's the only one that can express a devotion to his child in a way that's not mediated by the state like Titus, who after all begins the play by killing his own children.
1: Titus and his family shoot arrows into the emperor's court, wrapped with messages to the gods. "Since there's no justice in earth nor hell, we will solicit heaven and move the gods to send down justice," says Titus. Saturninus, outraged, orders Titus's arrest. Then he learns that Lucius is leading a Goth army to attack Rome in revenge. Saturninus is fearful, but Tamora says she will enchant the old Andronicus and persuade Titus to persuade Lucius to call off his attack. The goth army captures Aaron and his son. This is the incarnate devil that robbed Andronicus of his good hand, says Lucius, and he orders them to be hanged. Aaron says he will reveal some important information if Lucius swears to protect his child. Lucius agrees. Playing into Lucius's racialised expectations about his inherent villainy, Aaron reveals that Tamora's sons murdered Bassianus, framed Titus's sons, and raped and mutilated Lavinia, and that he helped plot it all. Like a black dog, as the saying is, he says. If there be devils, would I were a devil? Tamora goes to Titus disguised as the spirit of revenge, with her ministers rape and murder, really Chiron and Demetrius. She offers to help Titus take vengeance on his enemies, while really planning to distract him and Lucius so she can disperse the Goth army. But Titus has a plan of his own. Titus asks revenge if rape and murder can stay with him when she departs. Titus then binds the brothers and tells them, I will grind your bones to dust and with your blood and it, I'll make two pies of your shameful heads. He then cuts their throats. Lucius, Marcus, Saturninus and Tamora gather at Titus's house for a parley of peace and a banquet a banquet where Saturninus and Tamora eat the pie that Titus has prepared. Titus asks Saturninus, was it well done of rush Virginius to slay his daughter because she was enforced, stained and deflowered? Virginius was a Roman centurion who killed his daughter Virginia because she had been raped, or in some versions of the story, to prevent her being raped. Saturninus replies that this was a good action. A pattern for me most wretched to perform the like, says Titus, and then he kills Lavinia.
0: We have no idea from the text as it stands before us, whether she is aware of what's about to happen to her, whether she has consented to her murder, or whether Titus has surprised her by, once again, invoking classical literature, like, by this active repetition of Roman history.
1: Shocked, Saturninus and Tamora ask why he has killed Lavinia. Titus explains that Chiron and Demetrius raped her, and Saturninus demands they be brought to him. Why, there they are, both baked in this pie, whereof their mother daintily hath fed. Titus answers, and he stabs Tamora. Saturninus then cries, "'Die, frantic wretch, for this accursed deed!' as he kills Titus. Lucius then kills Saturninus, crying, "'Can the sun's eye behold his father bleed?' There's an uproar. Lucius and Marcus retreat to safety above the fray and address the people of Rome. "'You sad-faced sons of Rome,' calls Marcus." Oh, let me teach you how to knit these broken limbs again into one body. Lucius tells how Chiron and Demetrius murdered Bassianus, raped Lavinia, and caused Lavinia's brothers to be beheaded and exiled. Now judge what cause had Titus to revenge, says Marcus. What say you Romans? The people hail Lucius as their emperor.
0: The beginning of the play is Marcus hailing Titus to, and giving him the opportunity to declare himself emperor. Titus does have the power at that moment to name himself emperor. Perhaps that's the tragedy that he misreads situation and fails to seize the occasion. We get the same scene in Act 5. Marcus declaring Lucius Rome's royal emperor. It's a remarkable repetition.
1: Lucius first passes sentence on Aaron, whom Marcus called chief architect and plotter of these woes. He will be buried up to his chest and left to starve. In another repetition of the first scene, Lucius opens the Andronicus' tomb to bury Titus and Lavinia. But, as for that ravenous tiger Tamora, he says, throw her forth to beasts and birds, her life was beastly and devoid of pity, and being dead, let birds on her take pity. This is the end of the play, but is it the end of Rome's political strife? For Professor Leo, that's a question the audience is left to answer.
0: Where we're left with Titus Andronicus, we're left with far more problems and future challenges than we are with any stasis. There's no comfort in the ending. If there's joy, it's very perverse joy. The revenge has been achieved, I suppose, but we are asked to imagine the future of this speculative world, this kind of vaguely historical Rome. What happens next? Where do we go from this conclusion? Like, you have to keep doing the work.
1: In our next episode, we'll look more closely at the world of this play and at why Shakespeare's version of the Roman world is nearly as shocking as the violence that permeates it.